So I don't know if there's some parts of the Bible that every time you come across them they just grab you. Uh, This is one of those passages for me. If I'm just reading through, having my diva, I come across this passage, I can't help, either a tear comes to my eye or it just really grips me and uh, catches my breath. So I've been, um, over the last few months, I've just been sort of saturating uh, myself and immersing myself in the Gospel of Mark and um, so when Garth asked me if I'd speak, I just thought I'd pick a passage that um, had struck me from Mark and so I've also brought in the reading from Matthew. Um, Any time you study a passage in the Gospel, of course, uh, you've got this amazing benefit often of another camera angle from one of the other Gospel authors that gives you this amazing perspective um, that you might not get. I almost wish we had... um, the equivalent of the Gospel for all the Bible books so we could get all these angles on other parts of the Bible. But uh, in this particular instance we have both Matthew and Mark um, giving their unique um, account of this, of this story with the different audiences they write to and the different perspectives they have. Um, so you might want to keep your left finger or left thumb in uh, Matthew and your right in, in Mark because I'll sort of interchangeably talk between the details of the two and, and draw out bits and pieces. Uh, but I feel like this passage in particular is one that we need the, the context for and uh, I want to give you that context by talking about the first six chapters of Mark leading up to this event. Uh, Mark is an action gospel, chapter one, straight into the baptism, straight into miracles of Jesus. And uh, we find very early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, he heals, or he casts out a demon rather in the synagogue, uh, news about him spreads quickly over the region of Galilee. We read that in chapter 1. Uh, and actually he heals a guy with leprosy. He tells the guy, please keep this quiet. Um, just go to the temple and show yourself to the priests. Go through the, the um, cleansing process. But the guy does go out and tell people. As a result, um, Jesus can't actually go into towns anymore. Uh, the crowds throng around him. As a result, he can't go into towns and stays outside in lonely places. This is in chapter 143. It says, Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So very early in Jesus' ministry, um, there's this real crowd mentality around Jesus. And you can see on these maps up here, uh, the one on the left is sort of a map of ancient times, while the one on the right is modern Israel, um, with its current boundaries and so on. And you can just see down the bottom here the Sea of Galilee. And so earlier in the year we... We looked at Jesus giving a sermon on the mount. It was probably somewhere over here that he gave that sermon. Capernaum, at the back of the lake there, this is the northern shore of the the Sea of Galilee. So this was Jesus' stomping ground. But wherever he went, uh, he was crowded by people. And uh, in Mark 3, verse 7, Jesus tries to withdraw with his disciples. It's all getting a bit much. Uh, He withdraws with his disciples to the lake, but a a large crowd from Galilee follow. This is typical of these first six chapters. Mark 3, verse 20, Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And uh, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. Even his family is looking at the ministry of Jesus and going, this this can't be sustained, This this is crazy, this is insane. We're going to take Jesus, bring him out by force and and bring him out of this situation. Um. And I guess all this ministry, this intensive ministry, really meets meets a focal point in chapter 6. Kind of the uh, pressure cooker starts to pop. Jesus has sent the 12 disciples out on a a ministry tour 
to preach and teach in the villages of Galilee. He's sent them to cast out demons to heal the sick in his name. They've come back to Jesus looking for a debrief, telling him all the things that they've been up to. At the same time, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is beheaded by Herod, executed um, for crossing Herod's wife, Herodias. And at the same time, Jesus has fed the 5,000 people. He looked for rest, he withdrew, crosses the lake, the people meet, crowds throng him uh, and he feeds the 5,000. After feeding the 5,000, he explains the deeper meaning about how he is the bread of life and many of his followers actually abandon and reject Jesus from that point. So you've got this real melting pot of um, John the Baptist being executed, you've got Jesus' disciples coming back for a debrief, you've got the relentless pressure of of the ministry of Jesus so that they couldn't even eat Uh, and this is all in chapter 6. And so in chapter 7... Jesus finally manages to sneak away. He gets to, um, probably heads off through the night over the mountains um, from the Sea of Galilee towards Tyre, which is on the coast. You can see it right up on the top left-hand corner of that map, or called Sur in modern uh, Lebanon. Um, So he he takes this approximately 50-mile journey and, and no one knows he's gone. So he's finally got this time to debrief on the death of his cousin, for his own personal reflection, he's got the chance to teach his disciples, debrief them on the ministry that they've been doing. Uh, and so this is the background uh, that Jesus has finally got this secret disciples retreat entire organised. It's going to be a great weekend away or maybe a week away. Um, but he gets there and this woman from Tyre discovers his presence. So as it says in... Uh, Mark 7.24 says he entered a house in Tyre and did not want anyone to know it yet he could not keep his presence secret. And so this, this Greek woman uh, or she's, she speaks Greek rather but she's Syrophoenician by racial background she's a Canaanite uh, woman she finds out about Jesus somehow maybe they recognise Jesus there were people from Tyre at the Sermon on the Mount maybe some of those people saw Jesus coming along the road in the early morning or something and said, look, we think the healer from Galilee is here. This woman has had a daughter that's demon-possessed, suffering terribly. Uh, I can imagine she'd exhausted every single possibility of how to, how to get her daughter healed. Maybe she even went to listen to Jesus at, at the Sermon on the Mount and sussed him out for herself, hearing that a healer uh, was in the region. We don't know, but she's very quick to um, come and make herself known to Jesus. So just focusing on this woman a little more um, and she to me is the real inspiration in this passage. Um, if we look at her response to Jesus and, and how she comes, she comes believing. In the, in the Matthew account she calls him Lord, uh, the same word that Jesus' disciples often talk to him, or often refer to him as. And she calls him the son of David, obviously a title um, pinning the hopes of Jesus being the Messiah onto him. This is the king, the God's promised king, the son of David. She's bold. She comes by herself as a woman in this culture uh, to a group of strangers and foreigners that are not, not locals in the town. Uh, and she's humble. She pleads for mercy. She doesn't come with a sense of entitlement. Um, Jesus, you've, you've healed so many people. Heal my daughter. Um, she comes pleading for mercy. 
falling down at Jesus' feet, kneeling before him. And she's persistent. She doesn't accept Jesus' initial silence and no response for an answer. And she's so persistent that the disciples are quite annoyed. They urge Jesus to send her away. So she's not only um, facing this sort of hostile or potentially um, obviously annoyed um, group of disciples, um, but she's not getting any initial response from Jesus either. But so she's an amazing woman. She comes to Jesus looking for her daughter to be set free from this demon possession that she's suffering terribly from. So now we come to the possibly the more confusing part of the passage. Why is Jesus talking about dogs, breadcrumbs? Um, and I think this, this part of the passage has a potential to sort of confuse us and lose the meaning of the, the passage. I'll spend a bit of time explaining it. It's important to note here that uh, as opposed to all the other passages in the New Testament that talk about dogs, they often talk, all the other passages talk about dogs in a negative way, like those evil men, those dogs. Um, here, Jesus uses a unique word for dogs, only found here in the New Testament, and it's basically little dogs. So, um, while the concept of household pets is not as familiar um, to this uh, Middle Eastern culture at this time as it is to us, they did have the concept of a pet at the table. Certainly, you're not going to bring in wild dogs to sit under the table while you feed your children, at least I wouldn't. Um, And so Jesus here is talking about little dogs. He's talking about loved household pets. And so rather than see this as Jesus saying, oh, this this woman is a dog, either A, because she's a woman or because she's a Gentile, that would be a completely incorrect way to understand what Jesus is saying here. And the woman sees that and realises the true meaning of what Jesus is saying by her response. And so um, he's not using it as a derogatory term to imply that she has lesser value as a woman or a Gentile. Rather, he's using it to convey priorities and hence he uses the word first in in the account of Mark. He says, First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And we can see this throughout Jesus' ministry. For example, when he sends the twelve out in Matthew 10, Jesus gives them these instructions. He says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. And so we see that the core of Jesus' ministry um, was to come to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and reveal the truth of the new covenant in him to the people. And so the Israelites who had the law, they had the sacrificial system, they had all the prophets teaching them over hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus says, I've come to teach them so that through them the gospel can go out. Not only that, Jesus' immediate priority here is his disciples. He has his own need for rest through John the Baptist and through the intensive ministry, but his disciples need debrief. These uh, 12 disciples, with the exception of Judas, are going to go on to become the pillars of the church, the New Testament church. So Jesus has a huge priority on teaching them, on helping them to understand their ministry. So he says to the woman, and she understands, she says, okay, I understand, I'm the dog in this, in this picture uh, and the Jewish people are the children. She says, Lord, I get that analogy, I understand the priority um, about your chosen people. 
but she says, she seizes on the fact that Jesus says first, let the children eat. She says, okay, it's coming my way eventually. And she says, even when the children are fed first, some of the crumbs spill over straight away and go to the dogs. So she says, in effect, what she's saying to Jesus is, I just need a crumb. If you give me the, just the crumb of your power and authority, my, de- my daughter's needs will be completely met. And this is her faith basis. She's confident that if she can get a little crumb off Jesus, her daughter will be healed of this demon possession and made well. And it's just incredible. I don't know how much this woman knew about Jesus. I don't know how much she'd heard of his teaching. The fact that she calls him Lord, Son of David, she had some knowledge. She didn't have the background that the disciples had day and night with him. She didn't have the background that Jesus' listeners at the Sermon of the Mount had with all the Old Testament and so on. And so, as we see this woman's response, um, in all of the Gospels, there's only two people that have a response from Jesus like this woman has. And he says in Matthew, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Any takers on who the other person is that Jesus says has great faith? It's actually the Roman centurion, Luke 6. Um, Jesus, straight after the Sermon on the Mount, comes into Capernaum and there's a Roman centurion who has a sick servant who Jesus heals. But at the end of that account, because basically the centurion says to Jesus, look, I'm a man under authority. I know how it works. I say, do this, do that. My soldiers and my servants, just do it. No questions asked. He says, I see in you, Jesus, that same authority. Just say the word. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus says, I tell you, I haven't seen such great faith in anyone in Israel. Of course, that happened before this woman, earlier. But these are the only two people that Jesus talks about as great faith. When he refers to his disciples, he sometimes calls them little faiths or no faiths. Um, And I just find it amazing that these two Gentiles are are recognised for their great faith. And so there's a large contrast to be seen, not just between the disciples. Of course, Peter himself only recognises Jesus as a Messiah in chapter 8, quite some time down the track. And so maybe this woman even influenced him to recognise the authority of Jesus as Messiah. Um, But I just find it amazing that God's chosen people, Jewish nation, missed it, the authority of Jesus, and these two Gentiles with very little background pick it up, claim it, seize it, call it their own by faith uh, and see the response from Jesus accordingly. And so it also points out the contrast between um, the Jewish leaders because even to the very end uh, they do not recognise Jesus' authority and we read in Mark 11 verse 27 this is Jesus coming to Jerusalem in his final um, times while Jesus was walking in the temple courts the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him by what authority are you doing these things they asked and who gave you authority to do this the most educated, knowledgeable, spiritually informed uh, people in the community completely misses authority. Um, and so I think the challenge is, uh, that comes to us from this passage is two ways and I'll get you to flick to the um, first application slide, Andrew. 
The first application that comes from this passage um, to me, and this is what sort of catches my breath when I read it, I think, uh, is just how inspiring this woman's faith is. So, whatever is happening in your life, whatever is happening in your relationships, at your work, in our church, are you able to trust Jesus to the degree that you can say, just a crumb, just a crumb, is all I need, I know it will be sufficient to meet my needs right now. Because that's a challenge of this woman, that her faith is so confident in Jesus' power and authority that she says, I don't need the whole lot and there's more to come later but right now I just need a crumb. What faith. We can also learn from her trust, her boldness, her humility and her persistence. All key traits uh, within a vibrant faith that when we come to God we need to bring these things and we can learn from her in that regard. Second point, um, I'll get you to jump to the next slide, Andrew. It's just really asking us this morning, how are you responding to the authority of Jesus in your life? I think when we come to these passages, uh, we can sort of gloss over them. We can... I know for me, like that's the centurion passage and this passage of the woman, they really strike me every time but I just wonder how can I have great faith? What can I do in my life so that if Jesus were to meet me in an interaction like this, he would say, you have great faith. I haven't seen such great faith. What is it about these two people, the centurion, but we've focused on this um, Syrophoenician woman today, that evokes the response from Jesus, you have great faith. I think the common link is their confidence and faith in the authority of Jesus that ties them both together. It's the root of the outcomes that that Jesus brings into their life but it's also the reason why Jesus praises them and marvels at their great faith because they've recognised who he is, what he's capable of, what he can do uh, and they act as if their life depends upon it. And so if we think about the authority of Jesus in our life, what does it look like to have great faith? What does it look like to have faith in the authority of Jesus? Um, there's lots of areas we could, we could think about, but I just want to um, bring these four areas. So Jesus has authority to forgive sins and we looked at that as part of communion. And I wondered this morning, are you carrying a burden of guilt on your shoulders from your own sin? Is there some sin in your life that you just feel is unforgivable? Maybe there's some recurring sin that you really battle with. Know this morning that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Anywhere else you go, you're wasting your time. You need to come to Jesus and he has been given authority by God and as God to forgive all sin. Maybe it's not your own sin this morning. Maybe you're carrying someone else's sin. Maybe you're holding a grudge. Maybe you've got the burden of holding someone else's sin against them this morning. If that's you, you need to know that again that Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sin. He forgives your sin if you ask him to and he can also forgive other people their sin. But he expects you Um, to forgive others as he forgives you. So know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Jesus has the authority to tell us what to do. 
Jesus has the authority to tell us how to live. Uh, As creator of the universe, as sustainer of all life, he has the authority to tell us how to express our sexuality. He has the authority to tell us what we should spend our money on. He has the authority to tell us how to run our marriages, how to raise our kids. Everything in our life, God wants to see transformation. He wants to see the influence of if we say he's got authority, if we say we love him, there's no area in our life that that doesn't touch. And so this morning know that Jesus has authority to tell us what to do. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of God in authority over the, the whole universe, over, over heaven and earth and we need to know that he has authority to tell us what to do. Jesus has authority to judge. Uh, numerous places in the Gospels it says that Jesus himself says, uh, all judgement has been given to me. So one day every single person will reach a point after their life where they face Jesus as the key judge of the entire way they've lived their life. Whether you're a Christian, whether whether you're not a Christian, your relationship with Jesus will be the single key factor in that judgement. And so Jesus has authority to judge That judgment will test the motivations of our heart. It will test what we've truly loved, what we've truly valued in this life, not what other people see, but the very core of our hearts and our our very being. So know that Jesus has authority to judge and each one of us will give an account to him for how we've lived, how we've spent our time. And then finally, all authority has been given to Jesus over the physical and spiritual realms. And Jesus in Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, The clear outworking of his authority over all things. If I had another, uh, maybe one hour, (laughs) I'd love to look at Colossians and unpack that point more. But Jesus' authority, and I I spent some time just reading heap of passages about his position of authority and it's just mind-blowing. Honestly, if we can just... We need to grasp a crumb of his authority and we'd be so much better off. This is life-changing and I feel like Jesus' disciples, like the, the Jewish elders and scribes, completely missed his authority. You know, It was something... Somehow there was some element of commonness that they missed. And we, sitting in church week after week, uh, if you've been a Christian a while, you can miss it. Jesus is the reality of Jesus' authority and how impacting and life-changing it should and must be. So as we marvel at this woman's faith and join with Jesus in praising her great faith, there's a real message in it for us to, to emulate her faith even though it might have been young, um, it was still great faith and we can learn a lot from that. And we can also think about the key question this morning, how are you responding to the authority of Jesus? Ha- have you got faith in his authority? 
I want to pray that God will help us uh, put what we've thought about this morning into action and into our lives. Please join me in praying. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this account, uh, these accounts from Matthew and Mark about this Syrophoenician woman. In some ways she's just a Gentile woman on the fringes of Jesus' ministry area. In other ways she's a, she's a great example of a woman of faith who challenges us as to where our faith is at and how we are responding to the authority of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for stretching this woman's faith and allowing it to come out in its full expression and for responding to her and healing her daughter. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us, as we think about your authority, might not just throw it over one shoulder or think about it for a second and then forget. Lord, I just pray that we, each one of us here can have a deep and growing understanding of your authority, that it might go from our heads as head knowledge into our hearts where it impacts every area of our lives. God, we praise you for the Lord Jesus and his great authority over all things. Nothing we face in this life is beyond his authority and everything ultimately will be subjected to him, Father. Death, sin, evil, all things will be placed under his feet as the ruler over all. So we thank you for him, Father, and help us to respond to his authority as we seek to live our lives for him. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.